Good evening. This is Ryan Underwood in the studio with From the Frontline. Tonight's program is on laying up treasures in heaven and investing in eternity. We are joined in the studio by Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Dr. Hammond. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. What did our Lord Jesus Christ teach concerning money? Actually, Lord Jesus taught a lot concerning money. He taught more, more of his parables and teachings concerning money than even any other subject. You could say he said more about money than he said even about heaven and hell combined, which is kind of surprising because we often think of money as something very worldly, materialistic, not so important. The really important things are the spiritual things. But you just take, let's go into John the Baptist. John the Baptist has new converts coming to him. What should we do? And he says to the soldiers, don't take money from anyone by force. Be content with your pay. To tax collectors, don't ta collect more than is lawful. Now, they didn't ask him about money. They asked, how should they live as believers? But the first application John the Baptist gave was how they were to deal with money, how not to covet it, how not to take what wasn't theirs, how to be generous and thoughtful. And our Lord Jesus taught continually about money that, uh, first of all, to understand that everything we have is a gift from God. All of our funds really belong to God. We are only stewards, and many of his parables deal with that, being a steward of the talents, the resources, the abilities that have been given, and that one day the owner, the master, the king, uh, is going to come, and we must give an account of what we've done with our time and our talents and the treasure that's been trusted to us, and how these things will count in the light of eternity. So our Lord Jesus taught us very much that we must remember that our money cannot go with us. Uh, bear in mind that everything we've got on this earth is going to either leave us or we're going to leave it. Either our wealth leaves us while we're on earth, like bad investments, stock market crashes, finances become worthless, or we leave it at the end. It was well said when somebody asked John D. Rockefeller's uh, lawyer after he died, said, how much did John D. Rockefeller leave? And the answer was, all of it. And that's so true. There's no U-Haul on a hearse. There's no trailer on a hearse. There's no pockets in a shroud. You cannot take it with you. And our Lord spoke about, he, he didn't normally use the word fool, but the person who laid up treasures on earth and he didn't think about eternity was called a fool. That here's this man who said, you know, I have so much, I'm going to pull down my bonds, build bigger bonds. And, and he was told, you fool, this night your very soul will be demanded of you. And the man dies, and then who's going to get all that he worked for? So continually, the parables and teachings of our Lord emphasize us to think of wealth and money in terms of eternity and also in terms of caring for the poor. If somebody asks you for something, help them. Give, be generous. It's very hard to be materialistic and greedy while you're being generous and giving. And so our Lord's teachings, if you just look at the Sermon on the Mount and the parables, again, the fresh light, one can see actually money is everywhere. And there's reasons for it because money in and of itself may not seem to be that important, but these originally money biblically is in terms of weights and measures. So weights of silver and gold. And so money value equaled weight. And that's why there's so much condemnation of those who have unjust weights and measures and unjust scales, and they cheat people. And one of the first things the Lord did when he came to the temple was take a whip and chase these cursed money lenders out of the temple. They were turning God's house into a house 
of uh, thievery. Instead of it being a house of prayer, instead of it being a place of worship, a place of prayer for all nations, it was being turned to a den of thieves and to a marketplace. So our Lord whipped these money changers out the temple, and history explains what these money changers were doing. You could not come and um, bring your worldly shekels, whether Greek, Roman, or Hebrew, into the temple. You had to get special temple consecrated shekels. And the money changers always made sure you lost on a deal, sort of like the bankers of today, where you're always losing on a deal. There's always some uh, charges for or interest rates or whatever's always against you. You're going to lose on deals. The money change is going to get wealthy. And so they were, they were stealing from God's people. And you might come with your sheep, but the Temple Bureau of Standards look and that sheep's got a blemish of some sort. You've got to buy one of these Temple-approved sh sheep of here, but you need Temple-approved shekels to do that. And it was a whole scam, an entire criminal enterprise going on there, running the Temple. The Temple was being run by some kind of mafia, with apologies to the mafia, because you know what the difference is between a mafia and the government. Uh, the mafia turns a profit. And the difference in organized crime and uh, the government is, well, organized crime is organized. But what you had at the temple was not just a government, but you had a corrupt religious government that was actually apostate as well. And no wonder the Lord took the whip and chased them out of the temple. So our Lord is t teaching us to be generous, to give our money away, to be concerned for the kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And therefore, uh, when you think in terms of eternity, I can't take it with me, but I can send it on ahead by investing in the bank of eternity where the Lord promises that you can have 30, 60, 100-fold. Now, is there any investment on earth that can offer a 100-fold, what's that, 10,000% in increase? You think of these miserable percentages that are offered by some financial houses. God's uh, investment bank can offer up to 10,000% return on your investment. How can you do better than that? So investing in God's bank, investing in eternity, is of course the best way in the light of eternity that we don't lay up treasures for others to take because you will lose your money. Either your money will leave you or you will leave your money. And so it's what was well said by Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Wadani Indians in Ecuador. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so our Lord told us to lay up treasures in heaven now, he wasn't telling us it's wrong to lay up treasures. He was telling us, rather, invest in what is going to last. Because here on earth, moth and rust uh, and thieves, thieves can break in and rust can, can decay it. But, uh, or you can have these money changers literally debasing the currency. They're engaged in, in coin clipping, where they clip little pieces off it and then they'd accumulate those coin clippings, burn them, melt them down, make more coins. So they were cheating. They were... Uh, often putting baser, current, baser metals in. So you might think there's a silver coin or a bronze coin or a gold coin, and meanwhile, it's a whole lot of other things. It wasn't what was of value. And a lot of that's being done today. A lot of worthless derivatives are being sold, and many people are investing in extremely shady enterprises which have almost no chance of surviving. So our Lord's teaching concerning money is to uh, be able to invest in eternity by you can't lay up treasures here on earth, but if you lay up treasures in heaven, your heart will be there. When some people say, how can I have a greater heart for heaven? Well, put your treasures there. Your heart will follow where your investments are. 
if people say, oh, how do I get to love more about missions? Well, invest in missions and you'll be more interested in missions. Just like people saying, how can I increase my faith? Well, read more of the Bible. Faith comes with hearing, hearing by the word of God. So if you want more faith, get more Bible. What should our attitude be towards money? I think we've got to think of ourselves as stewards. So my first attitude should be, it's not my money. It's God's money. Now, once I've surrendered to God, it shouldn't just be me who is baptized. It should include my checkbook or account or a credit card or a debit card, as the case may be. Basically, your wallet should go and the water baptism too. We shouldn't have this attitude of, well, God has me, but he doesn't have control of my money. So recognizing that money represents time, skills, energy, effort, wisdom, um, projects, productivity. That money represents a lot of things, but I must look at it as belonging to God because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He gave me whatever time, talents, and treasures I've got. And if I invest it wisely in his bank, as he tells us in the parables to be, so that when he comes and he says, what have you done with the talents I gave you? That you can show, look, I've made so many more talents. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, into the joy of your Lord. I'll set you over so many cities because of how much you did. But a person who comes along and says, well, Lord, um, I hid it. I, here, I wrapped it up and buried it in the ground. Here's your talent. And the Lord said, you should have at least invested in the bank where you would have got interest, which tells you that banks should be giving you interest. And there was a time when banks did pay you interest. Right now, the banks charge you no end of things and interest and take more and more service charge away from you while they have your money to use investment. And so the banks should be giving you interest, but they are charging us interest, which is exactly the wrong way around. There's a lot of condemnation of the Bible for usury. But the important thing is my attitude to money is I must not love money. The scripture even warns you that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many people have pierced themselves through many griefs through love of money. So money is not evil, but the love of money is. And when the rich young ruler came to the Lord and said, what must I do? The Lord said, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And obviously this man had a covetous problem and his riches were more important to him than obedience to God and eternity. So our attitude towards money should be, it's not mine, it belongs to the Lord. I need to seek his wisdom and guidance and his principles from the scripture as to how I can invest and use his money to best advance the kingdom of God. Now, of course, um, the Lord is generous and merciful and we can use what is needed for maintenance of ourselves and our loved ones that we are responsible for. But let's not get too inflated an opinion of ourselves. Um, it's not our store. We work there. We are God's delivery boy or God's delivery girl. We are his servants. We should not be the ones who think that we give ourselves some inflated CEO salary and so on. He doesn't increase our wealth to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. God gives to us that we can give. You are saved to serve. Oh, blessed are those who have been forgiven much because they love much. And the Lord gives to us that we can give to others. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. And so what I have is entrusted to me to pass on to where it can be of most impact for the extension of God's kingdom and to help God's people. God has given us more than we need so that we can bless others. So just take 2 Corinthians. The apostle Paul tells us 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. But I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And so, as it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread and food supply and multiply the seed you have sown, increase the fruits of your righteousness. And this is the biblical attitude. God has given to us more than we need so that we can enrich and bless others and be a means of God's mercy and grace in reaching others. What really matters in life? What should our heroes be seeking? Well, first and foremost, what really matters in life is God. God matters. His will matters. And what's going to last for eternity? The word of God will last for eternity. The kingdom of God will last for eternity. The people of God will last for eternity. God's creatures, God's word, God's worship, that will last for eternity. So I should be investing in eternity. And just think of uh, all the things that are around us that people fight over, that people steal and covet. Most of it's going to end up in some landfill. Whether you're talking about TVs, computers, cell phones, the things that people fight over and argue over in, in wills and you've got arguings and families and things that split people up and what people are coveting, almost all of it is going to end up on some landfill in in, in some kind of uh, rubbish heap. And we've seen many treasures of the past found in, in these uh, different places. So just take, for example, that um, missionary William Bowden. William Bowden invested everything in God's kingdom. He died early in the 20th century in Egypt as a missionary reaching Muslims for Christ. And he was a person who would not even buy himself a car. He, he made sure that his, his um, standards of living were low, but his standard of giving was very high. Now, not that far from where William Bowden's uh, tomb is, which says there's no explanation for such a life other than faith in Christ. That's on his tombstone. But if you don't go too far from there, you'll find... Uh, where William Carver discovered Tutankhamun's grave. Now, Tutankhamun uh, was a an Egyptian king or pharaoh who was buried in a gold coffin, which was buried in a gold tomb, which was encased in more gold, and surrounded by gold chariots and gold of all sorts of things. And it was meant for him to take to the next life. Well, it stayed right there in Egypt, in, in the, the tomb, until William Carver, who, by the way, was the man who came from the real Downton Abbey, the actual um, venue which is used for Downton Abbey movies. Well, William Carver came as an archaeologist and discovered this tomb, the greatest find in, in archaeological diggings in Egypt, uh, Tutankhamun's graves. Well, Tutankhamun died in his early 20s, a very, very, very rich person, uh, but he died of sexually transmitted diseases. He was uh, obviously a very debased person. He was not a moral person. Now compare William Bowden's dusty grave, which is very humble, and Tutankhamun's glorious grave. Well, in the light of eternity, which one had a more successful life? William Bowden came, no reserves, no regrets, no retreat. He came to serve God. He died in the field, and he laid up treasure in heaven. He is enjoying eternity in the glories of the Lord, doubtless with a well-done, good and faithful servant. What is Tutankhamun enjoying at this stage? Well, enjoying is not the right word, because if he died in rebellion to God and in violation of his covenant, he is enduring, to put it nicely, a Christless eternity, but there's much harsher ways you can describe it. 
it doesn't matter how much gold he had in his grave. It's not going to help him one bit because he didn't invest in God's kingdom. He built up his kingdom and his grave might look glorious, but it's uh, it's giving a very false impression of where, what eternity is like. So we can choose to have the attitude of, uh, I've seen this bumper sticker, he who dies for the most toys wins. Well, that's not true. He who dies for the most toys still dies and he loses all those toys. He's got to leave them behind him. So um, it would be more true. There are some of these board games where the winner is the one who has no cards left in his hand. Whereas the world's mentality is the more cards you've got in your hand, the more things you've got in your hand, the better. But you win the game often by making sure you've given away all your cards and you've got no cards left. So in God's kingdom, what really matters? Well, the word of God matters. Invest in the Bible. The kingdom of God matters. Invest in the kingdom of God. The people of God, the creatures of God, they will last for eternity. But um, a lot of what we see around us is not going to last. The banking houses are not going to last. The investments aren't going to last. You can be pretty sure that the dollar will not last, especially if they carry on the way they're going on right now. And I know how that can look because Rhodesia, where I grew up, was a paradise. It was betrayed, and now it's a Marxist hellhole, Zimbabwe. Well, $100 trillion note could not buy a loaf of bread in 2008. Couldn't buy a half a loaf of bread. And that was a $100 trillion note after they deducted 16 zeros from the currency. So they could print till the cows came home money off the um, printing press from the National Treasury. That didn't help a thing because it was, it was fiat currency. They were creating it out of nothing. Literally, let there be currency. And just to understand again, biblically, money is weight. So something of intrinsic value, gold, silver, platinum, weight. That is money. So people used to carry bags of maybe gold coins or silver coins, but this is a bit heavy and awkward. So they start to have promissory notes. I promised to pay the bearer on demand one pound in gold. That's where the word pound comes from. It was an actual pound of gold, one pound sterling, one pound silver. So uh, that's what the pound used to be. And of course, it's not much of that right now. Now, the word rand comes from Witwatersrand rand or ridge, the White Waters Ridge, which the British Parliament describes as the richest piece of real estate on earth. That, that's where the gold mines were. Miles underground, they had to dig, but they found huge amounts of gold, reefs of gold. And so the southern currency was called rand. It was one of the strongest currencies in the world. When I was growing up, the southern rand was stronger than the American dollar, stronger than the British pound. Well, that ended. Um, you just have to change your government, your policies, and go into socialism. And hey, presto, before you know it, the money's not worth much at all. So to show you the devaluing of currency, when I uh, bought my first motorbike, it was 1,000 Rand. I bought a brand new motorbike out of the shop window, drove it out for my missionary work. Okay. But my father, 10 years before, bought a motor car for 1,000 Rand. So 1971, a car was bought for 1,000 Rand. 1981, a motorbike was bought for 1,000 Rand. By 1991, a 1,000 Rand could buy you a good bicycle. Uh, by 2001, a 1,000 Rand could buy you a pair of running shoes. Today, uh, 2023, it would take about three to 4,000 rand to buy a good pair of running shoes. Now, bear in mind, I could have bought four motorbikes for what now you can put into a pair of running shoes. So that shows the basic currency. But, okay, I'm not an economist, but we had a good friend who's an economist, Stephen Mitford Goodson. He was once the director of the Southern Reserve Bank. 
Stephen Mitford Goodson, who studied in Stellenbosch University and in Ghent in uh, Belgium. He, he is very knowledgeable about economics, wrote books on it, such as the history of central banking and enslavement of mankind. Uh, he explained that the way currency has operated uh, through the years is basically a complete scheme for developing people of, of their wealth. So, for example, here's you've got the Reserve Bank. As he said, the South African Reserve Bank is not South African. It has no reserves and it's not a bank. Like the Federal Reserve Bank in America is not federal. It has no reserves. It's not a bank. It's a fraud. So the government comes along to the bank and says, we would like to borrow a billion rand or billion dollars or billion pounds. Bank of England, for example. No problem. They create the blip on the computer screen. It doesn't exist. It didn't exist a few moments before. They've just created it out of nothing. Fiat. But while the money they've given you doesn't exist, the, the interest they're charging you on loaning it to you is very real. And you will blood, sweat, and tears buy for that, pay for that. So Great Britain, for example, First World War, Great Britain had a Rothschild on the war cabinet who helped declare war, who then voted to borrow money from himself, from his bank, the Bank of England, which is not um, national, it's actually privately owned, which would surprise many people. So it's actually a Rothschild bank. So a Rothschild voted to borrow money from his bank to then pay his factories in, in many cases, Coventry, where they were producing most of the, rock, the bombs and artillery and machine guns and tanks that were being used to slaughter people on the other side. And then for 100 years, the British taxpayer was still paying back the loans to the um, Rothschild banks. So how's that for a ripoff? They create the wars, they create the debt, and they get the Goyam to work for centuries to pay back the interest. Basically, the history of central banking is enslavement of mankind. Stephen Richard Goodson documents how most people are paying ridiculous amounts for things that it shouldn't cost that much. Your government should be able to produce currency to help people to do fair enough exchanges so that your one, your one pound in gold promissory note is worth it. And you can go to the bank and say, please give me my pound. If you go and do that now and say, please give me my $100 or 100 rand, they'll say, you've got it. This piece of paper now is no longer promissory note. That is the currency. But that is nonsense. It's it's just a piece of paper. It's not worth a thing, and uh, except what they give it uh, some arbitrary value. And then in the case of Yugoslavia or Zimbabwe, suddenly hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions are worth absolutely nothing. You need wheelbarrows such as the poor folks in the Weimar Republic in Germany taking wheelbarrows of Deutschmark to try and buy a loaf of bread, and you find that the price changed from the time you drew the money to when you got to the shop, and you can't keep up with it, and that's the death of any country when your currency has been debased. And that's why there's so much condemnation in the Bible for people who debase currency. If the Lord says that a person with false weights and scales, um, I will not forgive, I will never forgive. So God hates unjust weights and measures, which is what most of our currency is today. And the bankers, and you can understand why the Lord Jesus took a whip to the bankers of his time when you think of uh, what they're doing to us even in our time. But that is... That is what does not matter. Money does not matter. That currency is going to be worthless. Those certificates of deposits, those IRAs and whatever else, and all the money we've got, it's not going to be worth a thing once we've died. And the best way to use this money is to convert our currency into what really matters and what's going to last for eternity. So just to think in terms of 
many people may uh, not understand how your currency can be absolutely worthless very fast. I saw that in Zimbabwe, but uh, to go back to history, at the end of the war between the states, all the Confederate dollars became worthless because the military victors um, had only U.S. federal dollars were going to be worth anything. Not that they weren't going to be debased later too, but so if you knew for certainty that the Confederate dollars were not going to be worth much in, in the next couple of months, what would the wise thing to be, to be done when you've got it? Convert it into some other means of currency that will endure this traumatic transition. Well, this world is going to come to an end, and all of our investments and money in this world is going to come to an end. It's all going to end up in some landfill. It's all going to end up in, on the rubbish dump, to put it simply. And so, ultimately, in light of eternity, what's going to last? The Word of God, the creatures of God, the people of God, the kingdom of God, that will last for eternity. That's what really matters. We must love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. How can we invest in eternity? Well, we may not be able to take it with us, but we can send it on ahead in the sense of, if I can take my resources, my time, my talents, my treasures here on earth, and I can invest it into the kingdom of God in a sense of preaching, teaching, counseling, and providing for needs, whether it's in discipleship, evangelism, missions, uh, Bible college teaching and so on, then I'm investing in eternity. So, for example, imagine one person whose life you impact here on earth, whether it is by investing your time, your wisdom, your talents, or actually funding, maybe buying this person a Bible, uh, doing what's needed to help disciple this person. And this person goes from being a drug addict on the streets uh, to being a trophy of grace, and they are now a disciple of Christ, winning other people to Christ. That is some of your treasures going on ahead. So imagine you you get to heaven and you are being welcomed with well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Here are the crowns that you earned. Of course, we're going to cast these crowns at the foot of the, the throne of God. Uh, but nevertheless, the Lord encourages us to work for, for reward. And it's reward in eternity, mind you. But just as the servants are evaluated, whether we're good and faithful servants with the talents that they were entrusted when the master comes back from a foreign country. So we will be evaluated. What have you done with your time? What have you done with your talents? What have you done with your treasures? And in the light of that, we will be rewarded in heaven. And we read in Corinthians that some people, what they spilt their lives on will be burned up and it'll be like wood, hay and stubble. Not going to last. Others, it was built, they were building with gems, with gold and silver and, and precious stones. And that's going to last. That can survive the fire of judgment. So how can I invest in eternity? By donating Bibles, by sponsoring uh, leadership training courses for some people. This young person, I want to invest in him getting a training, maybe at a Bible college, hopefully a good Bible college that actually believes and teaches the Bible, as opposed to an apostate institution that undermines people's belief. Unfortunately, some people are investing in very bad investments. Just think of how many Christian colleges in America are no longer true to their foundational, constitutional, creedal positions. And so that you think, I'm investing in this great college. Well, there was a time when Princeton and Yale and Harvard were God-honoring theological institutions producing men of God. That's a very long time ago, before our lifetime, before our grandparents' lifetime. But they were one time God-honoring. There was a time when Oxford and Cambridge were God-honoring institutions. But again, that's going back very, very far. So some people are investing in some 
college that's no longer true to the principles on which it was founded. That's not very helpful. There are some missions and ministries which may not be as true to the principles that they were when they started. But if I'm investing in Bibles, Bible teaching, discipleship, evangelism, transforming souls and transforming lives, discipling people to serve God's kingdom and to fulfill the Great Commission on Earth, then I'm investing in eternity. How much did the early church give? Well, it looks like they did much more than tithe. In the Old Testament, even the poorest Hebrew was expected to pay effectively three tithes when you look at it. Because they were not just the basic tithe of 10% of all that you produce and the harvest and everything else, but there were thanksgivings and there were different offerings that they paid and uh, temple taxes. And So when you got down to it, the average poor Israelite, as a dirt poor um, farmer who was maybe just a, a uh, farmer who's who's living by just what he could get out of the earth, they would be paying effectively a, a three tithes in, in full. Now, the early church was doing more than that. We hear of some people who literally sold everything they had and gave it all to the, the uh, elders, the apostles, to provide for the crisis at that time. The early church began with a crisis because on the day of Pentecost, there were thousands of people from all over the world who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They heard the gospel and they responded. And they were baptized and many stayed for further discipleship. Now, they hadn't budgeted, planned, uh, brought enough money to stay for several more months. And of course, the more you stay, there's, there's rents, there's food, there's a whole lot of expenses that you may not have expected, maybe even medical. And so the early church suddenly had a crisis of you've got hundreds of people from outside of town who need accommodation and support that they can get the discipleship needed before they take the gospel back to the utmost parts of the earth where they all came from. And so we read of some of the apostles like Barnabas laying everything they had, selling fields and, and property and giving it at the foot of the apostles who then appointed deacons to administering this. So the early church was doing much more than tithing. They were giving so generously and you read Paul's epistles to the Philippians and the Colossians where he's speaking about the, the offerings that they're giving and how generous they were. And that's what I was reading earlier in 2 Corinthians 9. There's a lot of generosity in the early church which is funding other ministry so that the apostle Paul could plant uh, more churches in other places and spend more time helping them. So the early church gave much more than a tithe. And it seems strange that today when we do all of our studies, all studies show that the average evangelical Bible-believing churchgoer is giving something in the region of 2 to 3% of their total income. Now, when you compare income with, with um, giving, the average Christian today says they do more than tithe, they, they grace give, they, they're giving out of grace. We're not legalists, we're not, we're not adhering to tithe, we give over and above. But statistically, it's found that the people who don't tithe are in fact giving so little that even if you put everyone together, and some people aren't tithing, the average in evangelical churches in the West today is 2 to 3% of the income is being given. So the tithe of the average Christian today amounts to less than 2% because, of course, some are giving full 10%, others are giving a lot less. And they found that in recent years, um, the um, percentage of churchgoers who are giving absolutely nothing has risen by 45%. So we've got many Christians who go to church and who don't give a thing and then we've got others who give a pittance, um, a small percentage. Now, bearing in mind that all the examples of giving in the Bible are of poor people giving, like the widow's mites, and 
people who could not afford it being super generous. And now we've probably got one of the most affluent societies in the history of the world. We've probably got a very higher standard of living than most people in history. The average person today who considers themselves middle class, even low middle class, has a lot of blessings and benefits that kings did not used to have in terms of accessibility to music. Okay, maybe it's not always real music, but they do have accessibility to real music if they tried. They've got better health, hot and cold water, electricity, a whole lot of things, whereas the bulk of people for most of history had to go out, chop wood and make a fire to cook anything, uh, who have not had accessibility to indoor plumbing, uh, running water, or let alone the health or the kind of quality of food, uh, accessible to the amount of fruits and vegetables, which in some cases came from the tropics, which we can now have in our local stores. So we are on many different levels in terms of the quality of shoes and clothes and warmth of clothing and so much more. We've got a high standard of living in even in some cases kings of the past might have had. More comfortable beds, better hygiene and all the rest of it. And yet our people are giving less than probably the church in any previous age. And this is not just Barna investigating this. It's every study shows that the quantity of giving is going down over the years. And it got much worse after the lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness, uh, salvation by vaccination, COVID cult, because many people start to boycott church. And by being persuaded by Fauci and the Wuhan Health Organization to not go to church, uh, okay, a clin um, abortion clinics could be open, yes, um, gambling joints could be open, casinos, but not churches or Bible studies or youth groups or anything like that. And so what we've seen is church attendance has plummeted and church giving has plummeted even worse. So when you think that in the Bible God rebukes his people in the Old Testament of robbing God, will a man rob God? Well, you have robbed me. Um, in what way? In tithes and offerings. So the Lord uh, condemns his Old Testament covenant people for robbing him by failing to pay the tithes and offerings because God gives us everything but he expects back from us the first day of the week and he expects the first tenth of all of our produce and, and all that we've received as investments into his kingdom and it's important because if I hold on to what God's given me and I don't pass on to others I'm missing a blessing uh, but also how is God's work to be funded if people are not each giving at least a tithe. If you have 10 wage earners tithing, that can keep one full-time person involved in ministry or missions. So if we would be tithing, uh, we could be advancing the work of the kingdom. And I know many, many people willing to go into ministry and missions who are stuck for lack of funds. If churches would just support their own members, we've got people from a church that don't have enough support to go to the field. Well, are the 10 wage-earning families in that congregation? If they are, you'd think they should be able to manage this. But many don't. They can have 100 wage-earning people in the congregation. And the average church gives spends more money on bubblegum than they do on uh, world missions and foreign missions. And that's a statistic from America. But I think we in South Africa could have... The average church go in South Africa spends more money on Kentucky Fried Chicken or Coca-Cola or their cell phone airtime than they spend on foreign missions. So unfortunately, we've got to a stage where the average church is not giving much. The early church gave a lot, but um, plainly that is not being followed today. We're not seeing joyful giving. As Corinthians says, God loves a cheerful giver, not grudgingly. And when you think that God has given everything I have, 
how wonderful it is for me to give back. It makes sense that too much is given, much is required, and too much more is given, much more is required. We are saved to serve. God blesses us that we can be a blessing to others. If God has given me more than I need to live on, uh, it's so that I can raise my standard of giving, not my standard of living. What are some biblical ways of practicing giving? There are tithes and offerings. So to your local congregation where you are spiritually fed and cared for, you should be investing. So taking the, the first tenth of what we've earned, not not the leftovers, but the first tenth. The Bible's very clear about that. And that's also the principle of the first day Sabbath, that we worship the Lord not on the last day of the week, as was the practice of Jews, but in the first day of the week. This has been the Christian one because we give God the first fruits. We give him the first day of the week and we give him the first fruits of our labors, 10%. But then there's also thanks, thank offerings and there's other kinds of um, gifts and offerings throughout the year in addition. But we should tithing should be absolutely basic and that should be to our local church. But then over and above that, we can be giving to different good causes in God's work, whether it is crisis pregnancy centers, unwed mothers' homes, um, pro-life activities, uh, Bible production, sponsoring Bibles in indigenous languages, supporting ministries and missions far and, uh, and wide. There's a lot of ways we can give. And of course, these days we've got the ability to, to also give electronically because there's crowdfunding methods online, which makes it easier than ever before. Over the years, we've tended to survive on money put in an envelope by people that has been handed to us off some public meetings. And in many cases, that's literally fueled us into the field so I've gone and speaking to us, and I've never asked for speaking fees and uh, never taken royalties in my books, but the books I sell in, in for example, Europe, America, Australia, um, and gifts that I might give after these meetings, that often, without going through the bank, because the bank charges you to bank cash, goes straight to the field for covering the cost we need, crossing the border to Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, the Congo, Nigeria, Sudan, wherever we've gone, literally money from the book tables uh, on a speaking tour, goes into the field directly. So there's many different ways that people can give, and we've got people who, who write checks. In some countries, like South Africa, they've abolished checks in banks now, but checks still work in many civilized countries where they have not uh, abolished it. Our government said they couldn't continue with checks because of the amount of fraud. Well, the government should know. I think most of what they do is fraud as well. So uh, unfortunately, checks are going out of fashion in some places, but there are electronic ways. Bear in mind, we don't just give money. We also can give our time and our talents. Donating time in a ministry is a very good way of giving as well. What are some of the most strategic projects that we can be involved in? I'm convinced Bibles and Bible teaching. Because what is the greatest need? When I've been going into the field, the first things I asked when I crossed the border into communist countries, Mozambique and Angola, what can we do to help you? What do you need? And we'd hear, Biblia, Biblia. They wanted Bibles. And when I brought out Bibles in their languages, in Shangon or Ovumbundu, uh, in Portuguese, and just see the people weeping and crying and lifting up the Bibles and kissing the Bibles and dancing with joy, and such excitement to get the Word of God. I have not had a Bible um, since the Cubans burnt my Bible five years ago. I've been praying for five years for my very own copy of the Word of God. This is the greatest gift anyone could have asked for, the Word of God in my own language. And I've heard that in different ways many a time. So... Bibles are super important. And of course, the Bible in a person's indigenous language, his mother tongue, will have the most impact, naturally, of course. But those are the most expensive Bibles of all. But they are super important because there's a smaller quantity. So 
the print runs for Bibles in English, French, Portuguese is much higher. And so the unit cost is lower. Whereas the print cost the, for the amounts printed for, say, Chichewa, Shauna, and Debele, uh, cause it much less. So the unit price is higher. But nevertheless, that's making a major impact. So over and above the Bibles that we tend to distribute from our mission that people have donated us in English or in Portuguese or French, um, is when people designate for a special projects. So this is for Bibles in indigenous African languages. And this is going to be put into the Bible in Shona or Zulu or Kosa or Shangan. And this is a strategic project. We call it special projects or Bibles in indigenous African languages. But then there's Bible teaching. After you've given out Bibles, and the need for Bibles in Africa is huge. Just take, for example, we've got 600 million people in Africa call themselves Christians. But officially, according to Operation World, more than 100 million churchgoers in Africa do not have a copy of the Bible. They do not even have a copy of the New Testament. It's worse than that. Not only do over 100 million not have a Bible, but, I mean, how can you be a good disciple without a Bible? But many of the pastors don't have a Bible. I mean, that's hard to believe. But most pastors in Africa do not have any Bible college training. So Africa's got the fastest growing church in the world. The church in Africa is expected to double in the next 25 years. By 2050, Operation World anticipates that the church in Africa will have doubled in number. But where are all the Bible colleges going to come from? Where are all the pastors going to come from? And as you know, tertiary training is expensive. And there's not that many Bible cultures anyway. And the few that are teaching the Bible do not have enough funding. And they have more students wanting to come than they can afford to, to keep. And they need textbooks. They need uh, food. They need electricity. They need a whole lot of things to keep operational. And even if the guest lecturers like ourselves are happy to donate our time, uh, there's still travel expenses for the college to just operate and for the outreach and so on. So I would say, without a doubt, Investing in Bible colleges, investing in Bible teaching and discipleship, in teachers who can go itinerantly running seminars and courses and conferences, as we try to do throughout Africa, taking the training to the people, donating libraries for pastors, study Bibles to the pastors, which is like gold in Africa. Uh, praise God for Dr. R.C. Sproul. Uh, he donated 2,000 Reformation study Bibles to us over the years that we were able to entrust to some key pastors everywhere from the Congo, Nigeria, up to Sudan. And these study Bibles are awfully valuable for a pastor who doesn't have theological training to help them to prepare sermons wisely. A study Bible is almost basic, but it's a major luxury. So if I think of the most strategic projects we can involve in, I'm immediately thinking Bibles, Bible teaching, study Bibles, libraries for pastors. What are some of the needs in God's kingdom? People. We don't have enough workers. Good people who are called, committed, and who are competent. So the harvest is large, the workers are few. But there are people willing to come, but they don't have the support, or they don't have the backing of the church. And with the average Christian not tithing, and with the average church not investing much in foreign missions, again, I think the statistic is that of of all the evangelical church in the world, their, their budget is, they put less than 1% of their total budget into foreign missions. So, uh, plainly, we need a reorientation. If more people would be tithing to the church, if more churches would be at least tithing to foreign missions, we would see the situation turned around dramatically. The greatest need in God's kingdom is workers, laborers. 
to pray for the Lord to thrust that labor into God's harvest field. We need people who are willing to learn and willing to work hard. We need missionary volunteers. We need teachers. We need evangelists. We need counselors, uh, workers on many different levels. So Bibles and Bible teaching and volunteers for God's kingdom. I'd say those are some of the most urgent needs in God's kingdom at this time, particularly Africa, which is poised to become the most Christian continent in the world. But one has to fear for the future to a degree because exciting as it is, the so many are coming at the church. What are they receiving? Well, they're receiving Trinity Broadcasting Network, God TV, Health and Wealth, Name It, Claim It and Frame It, Prosperity Cult, Word of Faith kind of heresies are coming in in great quantities. And what they need is Reformation teachings, back to the Bible for Reformation Revival teachings. But there's not as much funding for that. The Health and Wealth Gospel gets hordes and hordes of support. But Reformed missions dedicated to Bible teaching and to Bible distribution are not getting much support at all. Maybe it's not considered as exciting, or maybe the churches that believe in these principles aren't quite as generous or as visionary recognizing that they can impact the future dramatically by investing in these matters. So, yes, those are the great needs. We need more workers. If people would be encouraging the young people in the churches to donate their time, don't just do a gap year at home. If you can do a gap year, do a gap year in the field. Go to a mission, get skills and training and experience and learn things and invest in eternity, invest in the kingdom of God by when you come out of school and you want to know what to do next, come to a mission, donate your time and uh, see what you will learn in this mission and you will appreciate home and the Bible and your family so much more and come back and be able to enrich the life of your local church. We need lots more volunteers. We need lots lots more funds for these different projects, Bibles, Bibles, Indigenous Languages, Bible colleges and sponsoring students for courses like the Great Commission course, Biblical Worldview Summit. Ministries that we serve uh, and seek to help, like Back to the Bible Mission, they have so many needs, and yet they are training students from maybe 20 or more countries at any one time. And they've got 100 students at a time uh, from all over the continent. How strategic is that? You train these students in the Bible, and after three years, you're sending out people who are well-skilled in evangelism, discipleship, Bible teaching, they've surveyed every book in the Bible, and you can put them in a field and know that they can continue to be a good harvest. Um, There's two uh, parables of seeds and the sowers that the Lord gave. In the first parable of the sower, we are the sowers, and the seed that we're sowing is the word of God, and the field is the world. So we sow the word of God in the field, and yes, there's the hard ground, and there's the rocky ground, and there's the thorny ground, but there's the good soil as well. But in the second parable of the sower, God is the sower, and we, the sons and daughters of the kingdom, are the seed, and the field is the world. So just as we are sowing into people's hearts and minds, so God is sowing us into the world. He's putting us in different places where we can put down our roots and grow and produce much fruit. How can our hearers get in touch with you? If they want to contact our mission, Email mission at frontline.org.za, or as Americans say, ZA, frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.za, or if you're writing to me, it can be peter at frontline.org.za. I'll get that personally. Visit our website, frontlinemissionsa.org. That's Frontline Mission SA, short for South Africa. There's also the Frontline Mission NA.org, which is for North America where you will get especially a lot of our books that you can order and people who want to use checks and get 501c3 deductible receipts uh, can do it that way. So people in North America and 
Western Europe can write to or visit the Frontline Mission NA.org website and they'll get uh, our books like Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, Faith Under Fine Sudan, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, other books like those, and be able to also support the work practically that way. Uh, on the Frontline Mission SA.org website, you'll see we have Give, Send, Go and Pay Fast and uh, Pay Safe, these different options. Those, those are able to be online crowdfunding ways of supporting the work. And people who want to send checks can send it to Florida, and I think you've got the address for that. Yes. If you wish to donate to Frontline North America, you can make your checks payable to Frontline North America, P.O. Box 347, Interlochen, Florida. That's P.O. Box 347, Interlochen, Florida. Now, Matthew 6, 19 through 21 reads, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is Ryan Underwood in the studio with From the Frontline. God bless and good night.